0: Hello, IAR listeners. It's all relatives? Relativites? Whatever. I'm Kaylee, the host of this shit show, and I'm back for another episode of Rootier Madness. Number three, to be exact. People have opinions about this case. I love the exchange of ideas. This case is complicated, and you guys are all keeping me on my toes. We cover rough shit on this podcast. Listener, beware. No, seriously, beware. Buffalo Springfield will set the moon, and I'll see you on the other side.
1: Paranoia strikes
0: deep.
1: Into your life it will creep. Starts when you're always afraid.
0: I cover a case I get to the point that I know it forwards and back before I start to write my scripts. Yes, I will go back and double check my info and I do make mistakes, but I pretty much know what I'm about before I try to talk to y'all about anything. In the case of the Routiers, the more I research the more frustrated I become. I finally think I at least know why. It's a bifurcated thing. 1. There's not enough hard evidence for me to convict her in my own mind not beyond a reasonable doubt. Two, I can't get a handle on the psychosocial of any of the cast of characters in this case, especially not Darlie. I'm going to try to deal with the evidence first, because that's what you should use to convict anyone. We'll go over the character assassination at a later date. The previous episode ended with Darlie in the hospital, and the two oldest Routier boys, Damon and Devin, stabbed to death. The Routier home is now a crime scene. Evidence collection is underway. Analysts are at work. Important aside. None of the crime scene investigators made a log of the photos. As in, which photos were taken where and when? In the trial, these are referred to as contact sheets. A term which made me a bit confused because in photography, contact sheets have to do with the actual copies or transfers of the film negatives onto photo paper. In any event, contact sheet in this instance is a log that helps everyone make sense of the photos and how they relate to one another. Contact sheets were not used at the Routier crime scene because the Rowlett Police Department never used them. It was just not something they'd ever done, so there was not a reason to think to do them in this instance. In addition, and aggravating a pet peeve of mine, many of the photos are also missing a measurement reference. Nor did anyone number the film rolls. Why is any of this important? One of the main reasons is that, in normal circumstances, a crime scene does and can not remain preserved in its crime scene state for an indefinite period of time. At some point, the crime scene is going to have to go back to being whatever it was before the crime occurred. Look, sometimes I have a problem coherently expressing myself. This seems to be one of those moments. When you try to figure out a three-dimensional crime scene from two-dimensional images, it's hard. In particular, if you have no idea what this place looks like in a real-life three-dimensional space. Your brain will make things fit together in ways they never would in the real 3D world. It's like trying to climb stairs in an M.C. Escher painting. Only David Bowie can do it. And if you don't get that reference, I'm really sad. It is obvious from the Routier photos that items at the crime scene were moved. When there is no log and no note, the problem becomes that no one can tell which position is the correct one. The position in which the investigators would have first come across those items. Theoretically, how they would have been when the crime was committed. Because this did not happen in this investigation, even Officer Main, the officer who took the crime scene photos, got confused by which image came first during his testimony at trial. He also admits not only to moving things around, but that moving things can cross-contaminate the evidence. Put a pin in this because it will come up again. And lastly, Officer Main admits on the stand that he doesn't know much about cameras. He sets the camera on auto and just points and shoots. Phone cameras in 2023 are amazing. SLR film cameras in 1996 could also be amazing if you knew what you were doing. If you didn't know what you were doing, that could go a long way to explain the not so great quality of the crime scene photos. But I digress. You should be used to it by now. Let's begin talking about the evidence with the knives. The evidence text collected the knives and scissors in the house. All the knives were tested. Two knives became of particular interest. In the knife block, there was a bread knife, And that bread knife was found to have a microscopic fiber consistent with the screen that was cut. The implication being someone used the bread knife to cut the screen. Now, some of the talking heads bring up the fingerprint brushes that were used to dust the Routier crime scene and their possible contamination of the knife blade. Many fingerprint brushes are made of similar stuff as the screen, namely fiberglass. And the question arose whether the knives had been dusted for fingerprints prior to lifting trace from the knife. If this had been done, there was the possibility that the fiberglass on the knife came from the fingerprint brush. Trace evidence analyst Charles Lynch examined the knife and discovered the screen fibers, and he testified to this at the trial. Lynch looked at the fibers from the screen and the knife with a very powerful microscope called an SEM, and he found them to look the same. In forensics, there are many reasons why no one wants to say that samples A and B are the same. This is why the phrase consistent with is used. Lynch outlines all the reasons the fibers are consistent with one another, and he gives an accounting of the other items in the home with fiberglass, which he compared to the fibers on the knife. None of them were consistent. Lynch also made a comparison to one of the fingerprint brushes in the possession of the crime scene tech who processed the scene for fingerprints. From the transcripts, quote, Question. Let me ask you about one other source of fiberglass, fingerprint brushes. Are they also made of fiberglass? Answer. Yes, they are. Some of the most common fingerprint brushes used by the police are made of fiberglass. Question. Okay. Did you obtain a fingerprint brush from Rowlett? Answer. Officer Hamilton left his fingerprint brush at my laboratory over Saturday. Question. All right. Did you compare the fiberglass that made up his fingerprint brush with the fiberglass that you found on the knife, blade, and the screen also? Answer. Yes, I did. Question. All right. What were your findings when you looked at his fingerprint brush and fiberglass that made it up? Answer. The fiberglass rods that make up these fingerprint brushes are almost twice as thick as the fiberglass in the screen. So they are very, very different. The fingerprint brush rods are much larger. Everyone I've heard talk about the fingerprint brushes possibly being the source of the fibers in the bread knife, talk about it like that option was never tested. But that is categorically untrue. However, Lynch does not compare fibers from all the brushes in Hamilton's kit, nor is there a verification that all the brushes are made of the same thing. In fact, Officer Hamilton testifies that he has no clue what the brushes are made of. The only clarification we get is the one from Lynch that I just read. And in fact, it gets less exacting in cross. Quote, Now, you talked about the fiberglass on the brush. How thick did you tell me that diameter was? Answer, on. Question. On Mr. Hamilton's fiberglass dusting rod. Answer. It is at least 25% thicker than the fiberglass rods that make up the screen. Question. All right. Fiberglass rods that make up the screen were 10 microns. Answer. Diameter. Yes, sir. Question. Okay. So 25% more makes this 12.5 microns. Yes, sir. Question. All right. Now you told me that a 400% difference in the number of fiberglass particles on this photograph was not significant, didn't you? Answer, I don't recall 400% coming out of my mouth today. Question, well, you said four times. There were three or four times the number of glass particles on your experiments. Answer, right. Question, that's three or 400% more. Answer, yes, sir. Question, you didn't find that significant. Answer, no, I didn't. Question, okay, so instead of about 10 microns, these fiberglass particles in the fingerprint brush are about 12 and a half. Say 25% more. Answer. They're probably a little larger than that. I didn't put them on. Question. Well, those were your words, weren't they? 25%. Answer. I said about 25% more, and before that, I said they were almost twice as thick. I didn't do the exact measurement. Question. Well, see, you have bounced around a little bit, haven't you? Answer. The rods that make up the fingerprint brush are much bigger than the rods that make up the screen. Question. Okay. And you told us 25% bigger just a minute ago. Answer. To be conservative. Question. Okay. Thank you. Now, and the rods in the screen vary in size too, don't they? Answer. Yes, they do. End quote. So that's about as clear as mud. In 2022, Darley's appeals team had a microscopist look at the bread knife trace. Well not the physical trace because the state of texas wouldn't let darley's team look at it and especially not touch this evidence samuel palanick had worked in the field for thirty-some odd years without going into explanations of refractive indices and rubber composition palanick's opinion was that a much more nuanced investigation of these fibers could be made to more precisely determine whether the fibers came from a fingerprint brush So, it wasn't as if this avenue wasn't explored, but it wasn't explored to the extent it could have been at the time. And it could be explored even further with the advancements in technology today. Oh, and just to be clear, this debris on the bread knife, not only is there no way to tell how long it had been on the knife, granted, if the knives get used, probably not very long, this debris is microscopic. Using the evidence collection techniques described in the trial, I am not positive this wasn't contamination of some sort. For example, Officer Main testifies, quote, Question, okay, and you removed the stapled evidence tag? Answer, yes, sir. Question, okay, and that is the stapled evidence tag that is now missing? Answer, well, I mean, I opened the bag. I think the evidence tag stayed on the bag itself. Question, well, you told me earlier that you stapled it. When you went back to the car after getting the sock, that you immediately went back to the car and stapled the evidence tag on as the third item. Answer, that's correct. So, when you went back to your car at 9 30, that evidence tag was still stapled to the bag. Answer, that's correct. Question, okay. And you had to tear that or remove the staple. Answer, yes. Question, was it stapled through the evidence tag? Yes, sir. Question, okay. So, you had to remove the staple and Answer, well, all I did was open the flap. Question, you kept the evidence tag on there? Answer, on the bag itself, yes. Question, okay, and you were able to just open it up and reach in and grab the sock? Answer, yes, sir. Question, well, doesn't that sort of defeat the purpose of securing the bag? Answer, the bag was secure. Question, well, it's not very secure if I can reach in and get the sock out, is it? Answer, well, I had full gaining on it. Question, well... I'm not fussing with you. I'm just talking about. Answer, I had it right there. Question, why do you staple the bag? Answer, I staple the evidence tag to attach it to the bag. Question, well, why do you, in general terms, why do you staple the bag? Answer, well, when I stapled that bag, it was to hold the evidence tag on the bag. End quote. I just can't. The second knife was a chef's knife, which was discovered on the kitchen counter. This is the knife that Darley is heard talking about in the 911 call, and it is bloody. A uh, mostly irrelevant point of personal contention. Everyone in this case refers to the murder weapon as a butcher knife, and the knife block as a butcher block. Are those Texas things? You would think that a state known for ranching would know the difference. Notice the inverted commas around my use of murder weapon. There is the presumption that this is the murder weapon, the chef's knife, but this was not fully and forensically established. Devin's pathologist testified first and would only state that this chef's knife could have made Devon's stab wounds, but that there was no way to tell for sure. Damon's pathologist testified after Devin's and the prosecution was smart enough not to ask more than, is this knife consistent with Damon's wounds, which she confirmed. The reason there is a question about this knife at all is that Devon's blood was not found on this knife, only Darley's and Damon's. If Devon was stabbed first, it is completely possible that his blood was essentially wiped off by the subsequent stabbing of Damon and Darley. It is also possible that there was another sharp implement involved. The neighborhood the Routiers lived in had an alley running behind the houses, and interestingly, in search of that alley, Sergeant Ward discovered three houses down from the Routiers the neighbors had been doing landscaping. The landscaping project was in mid-production. In that yard, there was a partially installed portion of edging and two knives, a silver knife just laying on the grass, and a knife, also identified as a butcher knife, sticking into the ground. Now look, It's about four o'clock in the morning and the whole setup appears innocent enough whoever had been doing landscaping had used those two knives as tools and had left everything in place when they finished for the day to pick back up again at a later date quote question were there any other factors that led you to not collect these two knives sir answer yes sir the when you find something that is suspicious it has to be taken into consideration of everything that was found there everything if you find a knife in one place, it is, and in another place, that it isn't. I was absolutely positive that those things had not been used. Question. Okay, has your opinion changed? Answer. None. End quote. I'm sure that cleared everything up for you. <laughs> the officer has just come from a bloody stabbing from which there were reports of the perpetrator leaving the scene on foot. And you don't think a kitchen knife sticking out of the ground in the neighbor's backyard is worth checking out? Most likely, this is what it seems. Someone who could afford that neighborhood and lawn edging, but couldn't afford a utility knife doing DIY in their backyard. But in this instance, in which the bad guy could easily have been a neighbor, it should be worth checking out. Again, self-fulfilling prophecy. The bad guy is supposedly Darley, so Ward can pat himself on the back, safe in the knowledge that he was right to not bother the poor neighbors about a muddy kitchen knife sticking out of the dirt in their lawn at four o'clock in the morning. Moving on, many people have a problem with the knives coming from the rootier home. If you are going to kill someone, why wouldn't you bring your own weapon? Why would you count on there being knives at the home? Really? Do you hear yourself? I doubt anyone has actually taken a survey, but I bet my bank account that 99.9% of homes in the U.S. have at least one sharp knife. It's pretty easy to count on there being a knife in the home. Two more things. One, if there were an intruder, there is nothing to say that the intruder was planning on killing someone, thus no reason to burn a weapon. And two, if you are going to kill someone, why the hell would you bring something that could trace back to you? The Golden State Killer pretty much only used items he found in the home of his victims. I thought I had to be the only person who thought this way, but then there was Paul Holes. God bless him. So the weapons are
1: all there. Everything is there. And the source of the weapons was from inside the house. Right, all of them. Now, intruders, when I've worked homicides or even serial sexual assaults, the offender often will equip themselves with a weapon from inside the victim's own house. Joe D'Angelo did that. You know, he would go in and, and grab a knife out of the kitchen drawer before going into the woman's bedroom. It seems so risky, Paul. Doesn't it seem risky to you? Why not bring your own weapon? Well, in part, you can go into any house and find something to kill. So these offenders have the confidence that they will be able to find something, whether it be a bludgeoning weapon, whether it be a knife, whether it be strangulation, you know, cordage. They will be able to find that. It's riskier to the offender to be out prowling in the middle of the night carrying a weapon. You know, because if they are contacted by law enforcement, now they have some explaining to do. So this is where individuals, uh, you know, oftentimes individuals that have criminal experience, maybe have been caught, they're on parole, they can't risk being found with a gun on them okay. or a knife on them. So that makes sense. They, they rely upon what's going to be present in the victim's house.
0: And that was off of his Buried Bones podcast. And whoops, I lied one more thing. Of course the weapons came from inside the home. No one looked for any outside the home, even when options were available. Side eye to Sergeant Ward. Darley says that the perpetrator dropped the knife and she picked it up. Weirdly, no fingerprints of any kind were found on the knife, not even of those people living in the house. If anyone brings up the sock right now, I will metaphorically shoot you. Let's talk about footprints and towels. Darlie testifies that she went to the kitchen sink, grabs towels, gets them wet, and takes them over to Damon, while Darren tries to save Devin. She says she goes to the sink several times. No one who discusses this case can figure out why she would use wet towels. Many people think this is just her way of explaining the kitchen sink looking like someone has tried to clean it out. We'll talk about that more when we discuss the blood evidence. Darlie admits she doesn't really know what she's doing. I did think about, when I was a kid, it was pretty common for a wet washcloth to be applied to a scraped knee and such. So I'm guessing that's where her mind went to, and the prosecution makes a similar comment when he questions her. That is, if this is all what really happened. Darren's testimony confirms her account, but I kind of feel like Darren has a loose relationship with the truth. I can't say I think he's a liar, but I also sense he would have no problem tweaking his story to tell things the way he needs them to be. The thing is, there are definitely some towels on the floor in the crime scene photos, but the photos are not great, and I can't tell if they look wet. Some of the towels, particularly the ones near the actual dead people, were not collected by crime scene analysts. The towels that were collected were collected together in one bag by the same officer I mentioned previously of staple fame, Officer Maine. In the kitchen, there is a vacuum lying on its face on the floor. When this vacuum is lifted up, blood is found underneath it. Not just blood, bloody footprints that are determined to be Darley's. There is a whole hue and cry from the prosecution about this vacuum. They suggest that if the scene had been real, there would be blood on the vacuum and the footprints under the vacuum mean that it was placed on top of the footprints as a ruse. Um, I don't get it. So, there's a vacuum laying over the footprints. All that means is that the vacuum came to be on top of the footprints after they were made. That's it. End of. I don't see how this can tell you anything else. But just in case, let's not forget that Darley is losing blood. Whether she was attacked or she sliced herself, she is losing blood. There's a moment in the 911 call where she says she feels like she's dying. Darley testifies in her trial that there was a moment where she felt really unwell. She's near the upright vacuum at the time and starts to lean on it without even really thinking about it. Then she kind of slides down to the floor and she thinks she takes that vacuum with her. BT-Dubs, the photos are shit, but I can see blood on the vacuum. Not a lot, but blood. So from any avenue, the vacuum is accounted for. There is also the issue of the wine glass. This is a similar issue as the vacuum. In the kitchen, there's a wine rack with stemware. On the floor in front of the rack, there is a broken glass, and the bulk of the blood is under the broken glass. Darley says she went after the intruder through the kitchen after she hears glass breaking. Darren, too, says that he heard glass break. It woke him up. Then he heard Darley scream. So those accounts generally jive, again, for whatever that's worth. Blood is under the glass, and Darley has no cuts on her feet, the assumption being that she would have cut her feet on the glass. In Ray the blood? Same answer as the vacuum. So fucking what? Tells you only that the glass broke after the blood got there. Darley's not cut feet? Also, so damn what? Again, the Sokko photos are shit, but it looks like there's enough glass scatter that you could walk through without touching glass. You'd be taking a chance, but who's really thinking about that when you're half awake and not even yet aware that you're losing blood? Even a bold person with full control of their faculties could be just fine walking through this supposed glass minefield. Also, do I have to tell you who collected this evidence? Please don't make me. I'm pretty sure you can guess. What is important to add, I believe, is that it is the wine rack which made one of the biggest Darley supporters do a 180. 19-year-old Ryan Kester is pre-law at the University of Texas. Yes, you heard me right. This kid is the Doogie Howser of true crime. He had made it his mission at 15 to prove Darley innocent. At a yard sale, he purchased a wine rack, which turned out to be the wine rack. And it was this that made him realize that Darley was guilty.
2: One day I was just scrolling through Nextdoor, which is like a neighborhood social networking app, and an ad for a garage sale popped up in Rowlett. And the Routier's wine rack was being sold. I don't know that they knew it was the Routier's wine rack. I don't think they did. The people couldn't remember where they had purchased it from. So we can't verify that the wine rack I have is the actual one from the house versus an exact copy, but the wine rack was sold off in an estate sale to help fund Darley's legal defense. The at Police did not take it into evidence, so it's very probable that I have the wine rack. Wow. And what is the significance of that wine rack? The significance of the wine rack, it was probably one of the most hotly debated issues at trial in terms of the old school forensics. In the Routier's kitchen, the wine rack kind of set against a wall and in between the wall and the island, so it was a pretty narrow space. Darlie had said that she heard the sound of glass breaking, and the police arrived and saw that there was a wine glass that had been shattered on the kitchen floor, and that was obviously next to the wine rack, and one space was missing for a wine glass holder on the wine rack. So there was the debate as to whether or not the wine glass could have fallen off of the wine rack if somebody had just kind of bumped into it. The wine rack is about six and a half feet tall and made of metal, and it's a very, very stable wine rack. And the only way that I could ever get the wine glass to fall off of it was by basically hitting it with enough force that one of the wine glasses would shatter against the other ones. And I only got it to do it one time, and the entire wine glass basically shattered. And even then, in the top of the prongs, there's this built-in safety mechanism. So the base of the wine glass was still in the prongs. And that contradicted Darlie's story because the wine glass was completely out of the prongs that were holding it.
0: That was from his interview on Roberta Glasses' podcast. So here's my problem with this. There's nothing to say that the glass was in the wine rack in the first place. It could easily have been sitting on the counter or on the wine rack, just not in one of the slots intended for glasses. Frankly, that would make swiping it onto the floor super easy. Ryan, your Matlock moment isn't really Perry Mason-worthy. Lastly, for today, I want to address the potential entrance-slash-exit from the garage window. For me, it is this part in the theory of the crime that has the biggest leap of logic. Where I live, garages do not have a lot of windows, so it took a minute for me to get a handle on this situation surrounding the Routier's garage. This garage is attached. It is in the rear of the house, and the side which faces the interior, or the yard side of the garage, has so many windows, it is easy to mistake it for an enclosed porch or sunroom. The purpose of all these windows, that only your vehicle will be enjoying, is beyond me. Just like many sunrooms, though, the windows basically run from ceiling to floor, and they are big windows. With no obstruction, window open wide, screen absent, nothing in front of the window on either the in or outside, a full adult human can duck in and out of the lowest windows without batting an eye. There are actually videos of Darren doing just that. These were made when people started questioning whether an intruder could have gotten in and or out through that window without leaving a trace. The problem is that this window was not unobstructed on the night in question. First of all, the screen was in the frame. Yes, it was cut, but it still restricted the opening, and I'm not convinced that an adult could have made it through without at least a tiny bit of a struggle. In addition, there was a cat cage sat against the window wall, and it was covering about half of this particular window. This cage, by the way, was not the kind that could be stepped over or shoved aside. It's probably at least six feet tall and three feet wide it looks like the same construction principle as a rabbit hutch. There's a multi-level cat tree inside. This thing is not going anywhere quick. The cut to the screen was pretty much in the center. If there had been nothing in the way, maybe, maybe someone could have gotten through okay. But with the cage partially obstructing movement, nope, that is not going to happen. On the it was an intruder side of the equation, this strongly implies that the cuts were made from the outside rather than the inside. Again, cat cage in the way if you're trying to cut the screen from the inside. It was dark at 2 a.m., so it is possible that an intruder cut the screen and then noticed there was a cage in the way. But then the question is begged. How did somebody get inside? Some people make the point that there is no reason to cut a screen because screens are made to just pop out of the frame. But that presupposes that the perpetrator knew this fact. As a kid, I'd been told this they pop out, but I actually tried to do this a couple times and it's a lot harder than you think. A knife would be easier. So the perp gets in the backyard and cuts the screen and then realizes that the window is blocked. He abandons using the window and then what? How does he get in? How does he leave? To be fair, having no explanation does not mean it did not happen, but I would like this explained if we were going to accept the intruder theory. Next time, I'll talk about the blood evidence and finish up the evidence discussion. You will have to wait a week or two for that because I will be recuperating. Eric Clapton will see you out, and I'll talk at you next time on It's All Relative.